Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my incredible (laughs) co-host, Ellen McGirt. Ellen, how are you? I am great. You know, I spent the weekend cleaning my house like I like to do, and I was marveling at the miracle of bleach. It does so much for so many things, and you know exactly why I'm mentioning it. I know why you're mentioning it, because that's uh, our guest today is Jim (laughs) Fitterling, the CEO of Dow, the material science company, which started its very first product was bleach. It sure was. Old as dirt. (laughs) And you know the value. You know, Ellen, I've gotten to know Jim fairly well over the last couple of years, and I think he's really a great example of the new type of leadership that we're trying to highlight in this podcast. Mm -hmm. He's running a giant petrochemical company, but he's sincerely committed to ending carbon emissions by 2050. He is the world's largest producer of plastic, Yet he is sincerely committed to ending single-use plastics by 2050 or or before. And and these aren't really contradictions. They're a recognition that you simply can't stop producing fossil fuels and plastic tomorrow. That would create a human catastrophe of unimaginable proportions. Instead, you have to invest and you have to plan and you have to innovate to get society to the point where we can make this transition. And, And Jim Fitterling seems to me to be a person who sincerely wants to be a big part of investing and planning and innovating to make that transition. I agree completely. This was the first time I had gotten a chance to talk with him, and he seems to be taking this challenge head on and in a really collaborative way. I mean, he is embracing stakeholder tensions in ways that lots of people aren't. And Lord knows he's been there forever. He started when he graduated college. He's been there about 35 years now. He's the CEO in 2018, just at a time when we need to really have these conversations in a very serious way. And I I also say, you know, he's one of the few openly gay CEOs in the Fortune 500. And he brings an unusual and personal approach to thinking about diversity and inclusion, which was a really nice thing to listen to. We should probably remind our listeners that the company Jim runs now is very different from the one he came to work for a few decades ago. It merged with DuPont in 2015, creating Dow DuPont. And then that company split into three different companies. And it was one of those three companies that Jim became CEO of in 2018. It's a complicated company in a complicated world, but Jim breaks it down beautifully. Let's dive in. Jim, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. I want to start at the mega level. I want to start from the top. You are running a company that makes plastic products from oil products, and you're doing that at a time when there is clearly increasing anxiety about the climate and about plastic waste. So tell us, and I know you're, you care deeply about both of those, so tell us how you square those things. Yeah, Alan, uh, it's great to be here. And, you know, we're an energy intensive uh, company, as are all the companies that make materials that you and I need every day, whether it's steel, aluminum, glass, paper, plastics. And I think one of the challenges with any energy intensive company is how do you get to a net zero future with carbon? 
And with plastics in particular, how do you deal with creating a circular economy out of the waste? And as you know, we've set targets to do both. We said that by 2050, we'll take Dow to a net zero position. And by 2030, we want to you know, make a substantial impact on plastic waste by taking a million metric tons a year out of the waste stream and recycling it back into our products. And I think we're making great progress on both. But that's one of the biggest challenges that the world has is how to get the materials that we need from energy intensive industries to be net zero. But there are a lot of people out there, and you know this better than anyone because you sit in the middle of it, who who tend to look at all of this in black and white terms and say, oh, you're an energy intensive company. You're making plastic products. You're in a bad business. How do you deal with those people? The invention of plastics allowed us to make many things lighter and stronger. And if you looked at an automobile today, for example, there's approximately 40% of the content comes from the fact that we were able to make that material lighter and stronger and, and actually reduce the weight of the vehicle, which reduced its energy usage and reduced its emissions. So those things are moving in the right direction. Our challenge is we've got a population that's seven and a half billion going to nine billion, and they all want a similar quality of life. So we've got to be able to do all this and keep up with them. It isn't a good or a bad thing. It's also a trade-off on costs, and it's uh, trying to manage the emissions. And so I think when people paint it as a good or a bad thing and say there is no role for fossil fuels in the future, I would say, hang on, what we're trying to do is get CO2 emissions down. And there, there is technology out there today. There's a lot of discussion around hydrogen or carbon capture or advanced nuclear as ways that we can have energy. In addition to solar and wind, we can have energy and still be able to keep up with this growing economy and these needs at the same time we bring CO2 emissions down. And I think on plastics, if you take a look at all of the substitute materials, like if you took plastics away and you said you have to package everything in paper or in glass or aluminum, you're going to increase the amount of waste in this world by about 30%. And you're going to increase the CO2 emissions footprint of all that by about four to five times. And I think that's not understood by people when they get presented with that simple analysis. You know, Jim, building on that, I was thinking earlier as I went through your slides for your most recent earnings call, which was pretty spectacular, actually, your results given just the year that we've gone through. And I'm happy to hear your take on all of that. But I was joking to myself and also to you that in 20 years of being a business reporter, there is no universe where you and I would have intersected before. I just never had that kind of technical beat before. And it's as I was thinking about it and I was going through their slides and struggling to understand some of the nuts and bolts of how you operate, it occurs to me that it is so important to understand your business. And it's so important for the average consumer and the voter and all of us to understand that there's Dow components and everything that we, so much of our lives from our sneakers to everything else, really. So I'm curious how you think about that complexity going forward, because in order to be able to hit some of these big sustainability goals and some of your big vision, you're going to need the average person sort of on board. Yeah, we need to take advantage of things like social media to get the messaging out. And I, I think because we're um, 
science and technology company and a technical company at that, we tend to overcomplicate the message. And I think the message is pretty simple. About 95 to 98% of everything you buy every day is touched in some way by the world of chemistry. Um, the world of chemistry is responsible for about 3 to 4% of the global CO2 emissions. So it isn't the biggest mm. CO2 emitter in the world, but it's a big energy user. And so I think that's what we have to solve for is energy use and materials use. And one of the things we try to do, and I think one of the things that drives our research organization and, and all of our employees is we want the next product that we make to be more sustainable than the last it's kind of planned obsolescence on uh, the products that we make. It, it needs to be more sustainable or there's no reason for us to go after it. And sometimes you are putting one of your chemistries or one of your products out of business while you're creating a uh, transition to a new business. And you can look at that, you know, like we, we're big participants in solar and wind energy. I mean, we provide a lot of the materials that it takes to build solar arrays and to build wind systems. So we're not against them, but solar and wind, for example, wouldn't supply the energy that we need to run some of our large manufacturing processes. It would be too expensive. And the amount of land that you would take up with mm. a solar farm would just not meet any environmental uh, sustainability definition. So, you know, Jim, that's a great segue to innovation, because if we're going to get from where we are today to where you say we need to be in 2050, there are going to have to be a lot of innovations. I wonder if you could sort of open the lab door a little bit for us and tell us what are the most exciting three or four big areas where you think there's the potential for breakthrough that can change the equation in this industry? In the process technology area, so one of the things um, people think about Dow is that we make products, but we also develop processes and we license that technology out to other people to use. And so we're working on process technologies in the making of monomers for plastics and in energy use to be able to reduce the CO2 footprint and be cost competitive by 25 to 50%. That's a big reduction. It's not to zero yet, but it's in the right direction. And then we're looking at also partnerships that we can see with blue hydrogen, for example. We're working on a project in the Netherlands right now, which would allow us to take blue hydrogen that's available near us and co-combust that with natural gas in one of our processes. And what that does is allows us to increase the CO2 concentration on the emissions so that we can strip it out. And so it's more expensive than what we do today, but it's within the realm of reason. So mm -hmm. on the process side, that's huge because 85% of our emissions really come from the process. If you go to product side, circularity is the real answer. And so if you, mm. you think about this, two years ago, we didn't have a product in our plastics line that had any post-consumer recycle material in it. We had some products that we would sell to companies like Trex, for example, for making architectural wood decking that help them to compatibilize uh, recyclable materials and make them into a, a structure. Today, we have products in every region of our globe 
that have post-consumer recycled material. And our sales of those materials this year are almost double what they were last year. Wow. And the demand by brand owners, there are over 400 brand owners here that have already stepped up and said, we are going to increase the amount of post-consumer recycled material. So we're almost at a point now where the supply is a little bit behind. We've got to get the supply to catch up. And I think that's a good thing. The EPA has said here, we want to see 50% of U.S. plastics recycle. We're signed on to that. We've been working with them for a while. And we would like to see that happen too. It's going to require some work with governments, both at the local, state, federal level, to drive that. But you can see a big demand pull. And that's important. I can't emphasize that enough. It is cheaper to make virgin plastic today than it is to recycle. But as that demand pull comes, people will start to see that we can make progress on the learning curve and get those costs down. Let me just follow up one more time on that because it's less costly to make virgin plastic, but for you, it also has to be much more profitable. I mean, that's your business. And so how do you as a business person think about working towards goals to replace your core product with recycled material? I think our company view is that we need to do our part to try to get to a net zero carbon emissions future because we believe that that will help keep climate change under control. And so when you think about it, our capital system is set up to reward the lowest cost, highest profitability companies. And so to do that today, I mean, at one point in time, you would have said burning coal for power was cheapest. Regulations have meant that today natural gas is the cheapest, but our system isn't designed to reward low cost and low CO2 emissions. It's designed to reward low cost. Right. So what we're trying to do now is solve for low cost and low CO2 emissions, which means there are going to have to be policies brought into place, a price on carbon. Mm. I would prefer a market-related price on carbon. Some would prefer a carbon tax. But either way, you put a price on carbon that allows you to square that circle. And that also becomes a method to put a border adjustment mechanism in place and make carbon emissions part of the trade equation. Just to finish that line of thinking, on the product side, that will make virgin plastic more expensive and recycled plastic more competitive? I think it will make virgin plastic more expensive or equal to recycled plastic, and it'll start to drive the equation in the opposite direction. And I think you're going to see it happen. There are going to be all kinds of things that come in between price on carbon, subsidizing new technologies that are lower CO2 emissions, trying to develop scalable nuclear technology so that all energy intensive industries, including steel, aluminum, glass and others, can get to a net zero future. I think you're going to see all of the above happen. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is the CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Thanks for being with us and thanks for your support. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, we all know that what gets measured gets managed. 
folks like your colleagues at Deloitte have spent a century building up metrics to keep track of shareholder return. But how do we measure stakeholder return? This is still all about measuring attributes that do in fact drive shareholder value. Because over the long term, if you are driving indicators that represent value creation to your stakeholders, that will translate into premium returns to your shareholders. So this is really about as lengthening our horizons. It's a combination of quantitative and qualitative metrics. There's an enormous amount of work to be done, but you're seeing a real sense of urgency around this. I think that's a really important point, that in the long term, over years, decades, the interests of shareholders and the interests of the stakeholders converge. But in the short term, they can often go in different directions. They certainly can. But what you see is leading investors encouraging the companies they invest in to make certain that they are building and leading sustainable enterprises with the objective of maximizing shareholder value over a long time. Joe, thanks for being with us. Alan, it's a real pleasure. You know, Alan and I have been talking about radical collaboration a lot on this show and recently just in our lives. And I was curious about your external counsel. It's become a best practice for Dow. It's a diverse group of people from a variety of sectors, government, you mentioned already, academia, business, NGOs. And I'm curious how that council has evolved, the kinds of tension that you may experience there, and any advice for anybody who's listening about how to engage external stakeholders in these important conversations, because it seems like a pretty good idea. The um, Sustainability External Advisory Council is more than 20 years old, probably in the neighborhood of 30 years old. It was put together at a time where we started down the sustainability path and started publishing external reports. Several of the members that have been on it historically were some of the original thought leaders behind the green movement. How do we get to a greener world? And it's now a very global group. Uh, You would run into many of them at forums like World Economic Forum and other places where we focus on our environmental goals. We don't always agree on every direction, but I think generally they've provided good guidance and leadership to us. They have access to management. They have access Mm. to committees of our board. So our Environment, Health, Safety, and Technology Committee, they meet with them on a regular basis, and they give us feedback on our goals. As we were setting the goals for net zero and circularity, they were right there commenting on the goals. And whether we were aggressive enough, whether we had the right metrics in place, who are the right people to work with, the right third parties to work with, because you can't do this in a vacuum. I wanted to ask also about your commitments to inclusion. This is your this is your leader, people leadership and philosopher king hat here. <laughs> and I'm curious, particularly now, we are in such an inflection point, not just not on race, but across the spectrum and immigration, LGBTQ issues, I know are very important to you as well. And I'm curious how you see your role evolving over the last couple of years to lead on issues of inclusion in the workforce. I think the biggest thing for us is to be more vocal and to talk to people about the kind of environment that we're trying to create at work. I've always been 
proud of the company and, and what we've done. I don't think it's in the front of everybody's mind that Dow would be a leader in this space, but we have been for some time. 20 years of having a LGBT plus employee resource group that ranks top of the charts with HRC, I think 15 consecutive years, perfect scores on the HRC rankings, a women's innovation network that's more than 25 years old. Our board and exec team are both in the top quartile for U.S. ethnic diversity, and we're working to improve the numbers. So, you know, right now our leadership team uh, has more than 30% women on it. U.S. minorities are are more than 35% on our leadership team. And uh, six of the 11 board members are either female or U.S. ethnic minorities. So we're making a lot of progress. And it's, to me, the most basic thing is treat other people the way that you want to be treated. It's the golden rule. It works in every country that we are around the world. It works in every religion. And that's kind of the basis for respect for people, which is one of our core values. And we want to try to embody that in what we do. And that means we want everybody to come to work every day and feel like they belong and they don't have to hide who they are and also feel like uh, we've got their back and that we're going to speak up for them and look out for them. And we care about what happens to them in the world because they're part of our team and uh, we want our team to be the best. Jim, you know, this podcast is really dedicated to the premise that business is changing and leader business leadership is changing and the rules of leadership are changing. We've spent a lot of time for the last 20 minutes or so talking about diversity and inclusion, talking about reducing energy intensity, talking about uh, circular economy for plastics. I know you well enough to know these are things you care deeply about, Mm -hmm. but I've also been around long enough to know that 20 years ago, that's probably not the way the CEO of Dow spent his time because it was he leading the company. So from where you sit, what's going on here? Hmm. Why is leadership of business changed so profoundly? I think the on the energy side, I think it's unimaginable to me that we can deal with the climate change issue without getting CO2 emissions down. So when you think about it, there isn't a logical answer that doesn't require us to do something dramatically differently. And also, let's be upfront about it, it will cost more. And when things cost more, that tends to drive, in some way, it drives consumption down or increases people's willingness to look at efficiency, which is one of the things that we need to do too. I think on the people side of things, we have social media has made a big change in terms of what we see. I'll go back to This is some time ago now, feels like Arab Spring Mm. was a good example of how social media exposed some injustices and what was going on and the world responded. And I think social media has given us visibility to some of the injustices that are happening to the point where you can't ignore them and you can't refute them. And so that requires us, you know, it's It sounds cliche, but remember the old Seinfeld episode, if you see something, you can't unsee it. And it's been put in front of us. And and we've got to look at it and say, this is not made up, it's real. And you've got to deal with it, not just talk about it, but you've got to take action and deal with it. 
And that's what we tried to do. You know, a year ago, we were talking about the George Floyd murder. You know, we took a set of actions to try to address that. We called it Dow Acts. It was pledging money for more scholarships for HBCUs, but also advancement inside our company and also uh, engagement with our communities about, you know, better policing techniques. You know, we, we're in small towns. We're a big company in small towns. But we have a, a relationship with local police and fire department organizations. We do drills and other things together, and we can sit down and talk positively about, hey, are there other ways to do this without having to be so confrontational about it? Can we avoid these kind of conflicts and can we reach a better outcome? So, you know, we feel a responsibility to the community. And I think at the end of the day, what this has shown up, which COVID has shown us is all you really have is your own community and you better yeah. take care of it. It's really well put, but it does seem to me that it makes your job immensely more complicated. You know, so much simpler to say, hey, I, I need to maximize revenues and minimize costs and, uh, <laughs> you know, get some good research underway and then everything will be fine. And you've you've got a much bigger burden on your shoulders. Well, that's just part of life. I mean, we just have to make sure we don't chase outlandish ideas that are so far out from an affordability standpoint that we waste a lot of money on them. Uh, we need to get it right, and we need to move in that direction. But our view is the long-term goal is net zero on emissions and complete circularity for the products we make. And the way we do design and innovation is we, we kind of design backwards. So here are the constraints of the system. Right. Let's frame the design that way, and let's go see what we can make happen. And actually, it's liberating for people. You know, I'm, I have employees that come to work every day and they'll, they'll look at waste heat and waste steam out of a process and they'll say, there's no reason that that should go to atmosphere. We can capture that. And there's got to be a value that can be captured there. And engineers get turned on by that. So, you know, let's flip it around and let's say, okay, let's design this system for lowest cost and lowest carbon emission and knock yourselves out and see what you can do. And oh, by the way, let's use the digital tools and make the CO2 emissions available to everybody so they can see what they're doing on a daily basis. And they can say, whoa, hang on, you know, we can cut this by 20% right now because some of the short-term incremental savings that we can get right now cost us next to nothing. Hmm. So let's get that done while we can, while we're working on these longer-term goals that are going to take a decade. Did you start out in life thinking you were going to be a CEO? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Actually, I, I, coming out of high school, I thought I was going to be a teacher. Both my parents were teachers and they said, no, 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 no. And so I, I went to accounting. I thought I was going to be an accountant and I got into college and I was more interested in engineering. So I switched majors into engineering and I don't think if I'd done that, I'd I don't think I'd be where I am today. Well, we're glad you're not an accountant, Jim Fitterly. <laughs> and, and some, day, some days I am. <laughs> yes. And we're glad you took the time to be with us today. Really great conversation, really inspiring uh, what you're doing. Agree, people don't fully understand it, and it, it's good of you to take the time to explain it. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Alan. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala. 
written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. Come see us in Midland, Michigan sometime. There's some good fly fishing on the Osaba River in Michigan. You would you would enjoy it. I'm Ellen driving will be up. There. I will drive up this summer. I will be there. I'm right in St. Louis. You take that stuffed fish with you, Ellen. When you go. <laughs> see? See? No respect. <laughs>